Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people, pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. Write in your Bibles to chapter 13, verse 22. There are these little details in the gospel and the story that until we link them together, uh, we miss them. And these details begin to emerge and begin to make sense. Luke 13, 22, and he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Keep moving right. Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. This one goes to 11. On the way to where? Jerusalem. He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now let's notice Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Luke 18, 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to, let's all say it together, Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Let's look at one more. I think there's something that the author wants us to see in these verses, something from the School of Redundancy School. Some of you got that. Chapter 19, verse 28, and if you did, we need to be friends. <laughs> and when he said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. So we see this again and again and again, kind of placed in the narrative. It's this thread that's woven through this Gospel of Luke of Jesus is going to Jerusalem on his way to Jerusalem. This happened as he was going to Jerusalem. This person said this as Jesus was going to Jerusalem. We get this sense in reading this gospel that there is something driving Jesus, something driving Jesus, namely to get to Jerusalem. And Jesus oriented his life and his rhythms and his schedule and his relationships with other people around this. This was the filter that he ran everything through. The filter of will this help Or will this hinder me from getting to Jerusalem? So what he says yes to and what he says no to is dictated by this larger goal of getting to Jerusalem. Now, it's important for us to note that this mission to Jerusalem does not prevent him from being spontaneous, um, compassionate, empathetic to meet needs. We see that all over Luke chapter 8. So, but whenever this happens, whenever he steps out from this mission to Jerusalem in order to meet a need, in order to heal someone, in order to speak something into someone's life, as soon as that is accomplished, he does what? He's back on the path, back on his mission to get to Jerusalem. So there are these dimensions that are fascinating to the life and the ministry of Jesus. So we've looked at this kind of missional dimension of Jesus's life. Now, I want to look and kind of shift our attention here to the relational dimension of Jesus's life. So go two books to the left, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, and there's this kind of odd thing that happens in Matthew chapter 17 between Jesus and some of his closest friends. And so we're going to try to frame it in the larger context of the story and the life of Jesus, and we're going to ask some questions after we read it. Luke chapter, or sorry, Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. 
And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, just out of thin air. There they are, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents or three shelters here. So this is the first uh, instance of a Christian building program. When in doubt, build something. So he takes his three buddies up on the mountain, and there's this kind of wild moment that happens. Moses and Elijah show up, and everything's kind of bright and shiny. And then this happens in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision. Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So they have this supernatural experience, Moses, Elijah, Jesus tells them, don't say anything about it. But what happens next in this scene is that they make their way down this mountain and they begin to have this back and forth conversation. It's this kind of teacher-student relationship that Jesus has with these three. And Jesus begins to ask them questions. They ask Jesus questions and he engages them in this conversation relationally. And they begin to dig in and investigate and share their hearts and Jesus teaches and instructs them. Well, so why is this important? Why is this important for us to understand? Uh, now, in Luke chapter 10, this happens, or Luke chapter 10, verse 1, this uh, verse in Luke 10 here is after the transfiguration story. So we just read the transfiguration story from Matthew 17. It's recorded again in the Gospel of Luke. So right after this, it says that after this, after the transfiguration, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. 72, that's interesting. Matthew 11 says, and when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, so we've got 72, we've got 12 disciples, but then Acts chapter 1, verse 15, after the ascension of Jesus, after Jesus ascends to heaven, it says, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of the persons was in all about 120. So by the time Jesus left the earth, there were about 120 people, core disciples that were following him, and we see through this story, this kind of ring of circles. You've got this outer ring of 120. You've got this inner ring of 72. And you've got this inner ring inside of that, within that, of 12. And at the heart of that, there's this core. This core of how many? Three. And what's interesting for us to note is that in Matthew 17, Jesus doesn't take 120 up on the mountain. Jesus doesn't take 72 up on the mountain. Jesus doesn't take 12 up on the mountain. How many does Jesus take on the mountain? Takes three. We see that he has these different levels of relationship because he can't take 72 up on the mountain and personally and relationally relate to them and interact with them. He can't take 72 people up on the mountain and one-on-one -on -one answer their questions and speak into their life in the same way that he can the three. He takes the three. And you have to wonder, like, he comes down, the, the, there's the 12, he took the three up, the nine are waiting, and they're like, man, you guys, you get, get to have all the fun, you rabbi's pets. You know, it, the thing is, Jesus seems to go deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer. Jesus goes deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer, with, which leaves us with the question, how many real Deep, transformative, vulnerable relationships can you handle? 72, 120, 
Are you better than Jesus? If our goal as followers of Christ is to be a disciple who makes a disciple, if that is our goal, if that is our number one calling, to be a disciple who makes a disciple, the question we have to ask ourselves is this, what's keeping you from doing it? What's keeping you from doing it? And maybe in light of this text and where we are in the story today, maybe what's keeping you from doing it is that you're trying to do too much for too many. And what you find if you step back and you look at your life is that you have 120 or 72 relationships that are a mile wide and an inch deep. But Jesus has the three. These three that are at his core, that he has a primary relationship, a primary connection with. He's got 12 that he's fairly close with, but not as close as he is with the three. He's not taking 72 up on the mountain. Jesus goes deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer. But I think that our experience in the modern world is that we tend to, and we are pushed in the direction of going shallower and shallower with more and more and more. And what we find is that we have, or we are relationally thin. What we find is that in our moments of need, in our moments of brokenness, in our moments of crisis, that there's probably a core group of people that will emerge, a core of three or maybe four, leaving you with 68 other friends that really aren't going to be there with you, 68 other people that you have invested your time and efforts with, but you're left with just a few others. So you have Jesus here, who is on his mission to Jerusalem, And while he's on that mission to Jerusalem, he has a close relationship, a close connection with just a few. And note, it's important for us to see here that there is no text in in the Bible where Jesus is apologizing to the other nine because of the three, or to the 72 because of the 12, or to the 120 because of the 72. Jesus says, I can take three up the mountain. I can take three up the mountain and I can invest in them and I can have a conversation with them, and I can teach them. I can't take 12, I can't take 72, I can't take 120, because three is the most effective for me. And this idea is countercultural for us, but it is astounding when we look at the life of Jesus, how he maintains such balance, and how he maintains such focus on his mission, and on those that he was given, those that he led, and those that he taught and he discipled. But I wanna push into this idea a little bit further. John chapter four, John chapter four, and a warning, if you're Dutch, and I I hear that that is a potential where we are here, just judging by the fact that 99% of the names in our church database began with the letter V, I'm just gonna guess, hypothetically, that there may be a Dutch person or two in here. And from what I'm learning as a Texan about this culture, that this idea and this teaching is gonna be tough, okay? It's gonna be tough, so brace yourself here. John chapter four, And he had to pass through Samaria, verse four. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of of Samaria called Sychar, where the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Jesus, the son of God, is tired. He's weary. He sits down at the well. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, 
give me a drink. Verse eight is stunning. It's in parentheses in my Bible. I'm not sure if it is in yours, but it's stunning because look what happens. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is tired. He's traveled the same journey with his disciples. His disciples have made the same journey with him. And Jesus sits. Jesus is weary. And what did the disciples do? They keep going. They keep going into the town to get food to bring to him. And you have to wonder, as they kept going, as Jesus sat down, you know, the disciples are going in there like, okay, this Son of God guy, he's not carrying his weight around here. I mean, he can cast out demons, but he can't go get a sandwich, you know? It's, it's this crazy scene, and it's really important that they kept going. And the question is, is Jesus worried, or does Jesus have fear that they're going to judge him because he sits and because he rests? And the key here is for us to see is that the Son of God who scripture tells us came to serve, had no problem being served. He had no problem appearing weak. He had no problem admitting that he was exhausted. He had no problem publicly saying, I'm cooked from that journey. And he sits down at the well. Others who made the same journey with him had the strength to keep going, to keep going into the city to get food. So Jesus has this mission to Jerusalem, this mission that acts as a filter for him and determines what he says yes to and what he says no to. Relationally, we see that Jesus is tight with just three people or at his inner core. And physically, we see that Jesus has no problem admitting when he's tired, no problem admitting when he's weak and weary and needs to sit and rest. Now, John chapter 5 is one of these instances in Scripture where Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain theologically uh, to give us a glimpse, to give us an insight into a bigger issue. And in John chapter 5, we get an insight into what determines this filter. What is this thing that determines his mission and acts as that filter that keeps him so focused, living with such clarity and such balance? John chapter five, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So Jesus, who is so connected with God, Jesus, as we talked about last week, lives with such ahad, the Hebrew word for one. He and the Father are one. Another scripture says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He's got this divine sense, this guided mission, this thing that he stays true to. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Whatever the Father has given me to do, I do that. I do that not this. I do this thing that the Father called me to, not all of these other things that prevent me from accomplishing the mission that my Father has placed me here on earth to do. And here's a key for us today, is that the Father does not hold Jesus accountable for not doing all of these other things. The Father only holds Jesus accountable to those things that allow him to accomplish the mission. The Father only holds Jesus accountable to those things 
that guide him toward his mission. And that's why this idea is easier said than done because it goes against the grain of modern culture. It goes against the grain of our wiring. It makes us step back and ask a question. What would it be like? What would it be like for us to live with such a vibrant connection with God that we have an unshakable sense of mission like Jesus? That we have a filter in place that allows us to say yes to certain things and no to others. That allows us to have a filter that says, yes, I'm gonna answer these emails, but not those emails. Yes, I'm gonna invest in these people, but I'm gonna have to say no to these people today. What would it take to have such a profound sense of clarity that you could have the focus of Jesus? Well, practically speaking, where does the rubber meet the road for us in this conversation? I wanna look at a quote from the 19th century philosopher, theologian, the Danish theologian, Soren Kierkegaard. He said this, it's short, it's profound, and it's life-changing if you really understand it. He said, purity of heart is to will the one thing. Purity of heart is to will the one thing. Kierkegaard goes on to write in this work that all the great saints, all the world changers, were able to will the one thing. What does this mean? Well, it means this. It begins with this idea that every choice that we make in life is a renunciation. Every choice is a renunciation. For example, if you guys, if you're single, you choose to marry this girl. Let me back up from that. You ask this girl <laughs> if you can marry her, and she says yes, and you get married. With that choice, you make a renunciation of I'm going to marry her and not her. Or my family, we're still kind of new to Sioux Falls, we made a choice to move to Sioux Falls, which means that we can no longer live in Texas. Or if you make the choice to spend your money here, what that means is that you can't spend your money here. Every choice is a renunciation. Or you say, I'm gonna expend my energy in this area of life, means you can't expend it in another area of life. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Ronald Rollheiser, and he said this. He's talking about this Kierkegaard quote, and he says this, but becoming a saint has a real cost. It's hard choice. It's commitment. It's single-mindedness. Willing the one thing. Renouncing whatever stands in the way. We all have this God-given energy. In Platonic thought and in Pauline theology, this is the Greek word eros. Eros means spiritual energy. So we wake up every morning with this God-given eros, this energy that God gives us. We wake up with that every single day, but we have unlimited options of where we can put that. In our world today, there are unlimited options of where that energy can go. And here's the thing, if we don't will the one thing, if we don't have our true north, if we don't have our Jerusalem, what happens with that eros? It becomes split, it becomes fractured, and it goes in a million directions. This is what James said in James chapter one, verse eight. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James is saying the person that can't will the one thing, the person that can't harness that eros and drive it toward one thing, 
The person that doesn't have that Jerusalem is double-minded. And what is the result or what is the outcome of being double-minded? Being unstable in all their ways. So those that make change, those that impact the kingdom of God for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ are those who are able to will the one thing to those who are able to live with a single-minded focus that have a Jerusalem. And it is a discipline for us as followers of Jesus to harness that eros and direct it toward the one thing, to have one mission, to have one group of people that I'm going to invest in so that they can then go and invest in others. This is a discipline that we have to learn. It is a discipline in order to be focused. It is a discipline for us also to learn the ability to say no, to master the art of the renunciation, to be okay with saying, you know what? I'm gonna invest my time in these people, which means that I'm gonna have to say no to those people. But our God is sovereign, our God is good, and our God is gonna provide for them, but God has called me to this mission. And because I am called to this mission, I'm not called to that. So Jesus has these great things, these people in Luke chapter four with pressing, urgent needs, but he's going to Jerusalem. Jesus can only take three up the mountain. Jesus is tired, and Jesus sits down at the well So the question we ask today as we wind down is, does the risen Christ give you permission today not to do it all? Does the risen Christ give you permission today not to do it all? If the Father gave Jesus the permission not to do it all, I believe that he probably does that for us as well. About... 16 years ago, I guess now, um, it was Christmas time and my family, we were taking a ski trip to Colorado. And on the way up, we stopped for the night in Albuquerque. And it was at the time when the movie Castaway came out. And it was a big, you know, cultural phenomenon. Everyone was really excited about it. And I think maybe we went to see it on opening night. But I remember getting there and there was this huge line to see the movie. And we waited like 20 hours in this line. And I never exaggerate, so that's exactly the truth. And we're waiting there, and the doors open, and we were finally able to go into the theater. And right before we go into the theater, out of thin air, these two guys materialized right before our eyes. They just, poof, they're there, and they cut in front of us in this line. Now, my brother-in-law was with us. This is before he was actually married to my sister, but he went with us on this trip, and my brother-in-law was there. And two things you need to know about my brother-in-law. Number one, he is like the real-life Chandler Bing, Okay. Like, he's funny, sarcastic, quick, subtle, witty, just hilarious, hilarious guy. The other thing you need to know about my brother-in-law is he's big. He's like Texas big, okay? Like Texas linebacker big, okay? Big, scary, but really funny guy. And I remember this moment, and I'm standing there, like, we've been waiting in line forever. And then these guys just show up, and they cut. And my brother-in-law, in his Chandler bigness and his bigness, he leans over there, over them, he taps him on the shoulder. He goes, hey there, what you doing? And they don't turn around, and he taps him again. And he's kind of leaning over them because he's so big. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? And then he got in front of them and tapped him on the shoulder. He's like, hey, can you see me now? What are you doing? <laughs> and it made me think about this story this week because as we race from one thing to the next, 
one meeting to the next, one event for our, for our, for our kids to the next, one social gathering to the next, as we're racing to answer all of our text messages and emails and making sure that we're caught up on Facebook, is maybe, it could it be a possibility that Jesus may need to sit next to us and tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, what are you doing? Think about how you spend your time. Think about the things that you rush to and from. Think about how you may be thinned out relationally. Are there things in your life that you are doing simply because you, are, you think you are expected to do them? The way of following Jesus is narrow. And because the way of following Jesus is narrow, it may mean that your calendar is less full. It may mean that you give space for the risen Christ and time for the risen Christ in prayer and in reading his word to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, what are you doing? Are you doing something simply to keep someone else happy at the expense of your family? Are you going in a million different directions, directions other than the direction of your true north, your Jerusalem? Are you living life as a double-minded person who is unstable and, and directionless in your life? Are you involved in a million activities because you haven't spent the time exploring, God, what is the one thing that you have called me to do? What is my Jerusalem? What is my true north? So some questions for us to consider as we wrap up today. Where in the rhythm of life are you or am I silent, reflective, listening to God say, do this, but don't do this? Where do we get vulnerable before our creator and allow a spirit to speak into our life to expose the motives of our heart? Are we going into the village to get food, weak and weary and barely hanging on because we don't want the disciples to think that we are tired? Are we going and pushing forward when we need to simply sit down at the well? And there's one amazing thing about, and there's many amazing things, but one thing I want us to focus on in John chapter four with this story that many of us have heard time and time again about Jesus in the well. So Jesus stops in his humanity and his willingness to admit that he has physical limits. He stops, he sits, he rests. And because of that, we have one of the most powerful encounters in all of scripture. But you know what we don't hear about? We don't hear about what happened to the disciples as they went into the village. Jesus embraces his limits. He knows when to stop. He knows when he needs to recognize that he's weak and when he needs rest. And in doing that, in sitting at the well, he has this encounter and God says, I'm gonna do a powerful work in this moment for generations to come because you were willing to say no, because you were willing to stop. And the final question for us today is this. It's simply this. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth us being okay saying no to this group of people so that we can say yes to these? Is Jesus worth it looking at our calendar and saying, you know what, I can't do those 40 things this week because I need to do this one thing? Is Jesus worth it? Let's pray.
God, I pray that in this moment, in the quiet, in this space, that you would allow us clarity of mind and focus to hear from your spirit right now, to just evaluate the chaos of our life and our calendars and our relationships and our schedules to see where are we going in a million different directions? Where are we living like double-minded people, God, where you want us to bring, where you want to bring clarity and focus and single-mindedness into our life to allow us to will the one thing. God, I pray that for us today, individually, that you would allow us, if we've lost sight of it or we've never had it, to discover what is your mission for us? What is our Jerusalem? God, I pray that that will become the driving force of our life, that that will become the fuel for that eros, that spiritual energy that you have given to us, that we will be a people who live on mission and are okay to saying no, okay to risk hurting someone's feelings, God, because we are people who are focused on living for you. God, we know that you love us. God, we know that you want to give us direction. God, we know that more than anything, you want your name to be glorified. But God, as we live as the hands and the feet of our Savior to this world, God, people aren't going to see much glory in our brokenness, in our frazzled attention, God. God, allow us to focus so that we can live life with intentionality, that we can live a life that is pleasing to you, a life that gives you glory. In your name we pray. Amen.